And so there's this duty implied that you don't want to put this burden on your peers and you, you don't want your patients to go without care. And so most of us just go numb and go on and just do the work because we think it's temporary. But the problem is, is that an average doctor one a day is dying by suicide because of many factors, but sleep deprivation is a big contributing factor. Welcome to Burnt Out to Lit Up. I'm your host, Erica, your quirky OT, uh, researcher, speaker, author. Today, we are celebrating sleep by diving into a deep topic and talking about the sleep deprivation that happens among residents and throughout medicine. And before I go into that, I would like to share with you my own sleep experience briefly. For many years, when I was a little kid, I wet the bed. I wet the bed technically until I was 14, although when I got into my preteen years, it was a lot less frequent, but I wasn't in the green light or in the green zone until I was officially 14. So I have been notoriously a deep sleeper. So the first thing when I was a deep sleeper as a child, my smoke detector in my bedroom was going off like the batteries were running low. And this is a time where we lived in a two-story house. So I was upstairs in my bedroom and my parents heard it. Everyone heard it. They came and they adjusted the batteries and I did not even flinch. I was completely out, even though it was in my bedroom and my parents downstairs heard the beeping. Um, So that's one thing I want to say. Another thing, so now it has taken me as an adult forever to fall asleep. But what has significantly helped me, and I feel like I say this so many times, but I'm sure this is new for some of you, that I have this power down hour practice. Sometimes I meditate in my power down hour. Sometimes I read. I pull my tarot cards sometimes. It depends on what I do. Um, Not every day is the same, but it is in that same context of the lights are dim, the string lights are on. I slow down. I do not check social media during my power down hour. Then after that, I go right to bed. No scrolling through my phone in bed. I'm very strict about this. I'm very loose with the morning time. So when I wake up in the morning, that's when I scroll and look through my phone. And it's really hard to start my morning not on my phone. But at least I'm winning in one area, right? But during my power down hour, having that relaxation zone, my candle lit, I will have binaural beats playing with whatever I'm doing. So reading, journaling, tarot, etc. And then that gets my body primed for bed. And now I'm falling asleep so quickly. Whereas generally throughout my 20s, it took me forever to fall asleep. And I would go to sleep with my brain buzzing and buzzing. And now my brain is not buzzing at all. There are nights where my power down hour is a lot different during the weekends. On Friday, like two weeks ago on Friday, I completely broke my own rules and I was on, I was about to say Snapchat. I haven't used Snapchat in five years, but I was on TikTok and I felt terrible. When I went to bed, I was up for later. I woke up in the middle middle of the night, couldn't go back to sleep. I was not well. Um, And also a few months ago, I was on Lexapro I tried that out. I physiologically could not sleep and it was terrible. Now, however, with Prozac, my sleep is 
not that it has made my sleep better. It just hasn't impacted my sleep in a negative way. So that's a good thing, right? (laughs) With antidepressants, there is that chance of sleep disturbances and insomnia. So it took a little trial and error, but I'm glad we found a medication that works for me. All right, so... It's Sleep Awareness Week. Dr. Laura Vatter is a returning guest on today's show. If you want to listen to our original interview, you can go back to episode 81. But I also re-released this so you could hear the re-release, the exact same episode just re-released in episode 138. Not only is Doc Laura an amazing human being, but she's a friend of mine and I respect her. And I respect her work and her contributions to medicine and her passion about preventative health, humanism and medicine, and the promotion of clinician health. So that's why we click so well, because we're both really passionate about similar things. The takeaways here, she talks about the fight that residents have to fight, which is sleep deprivation, the history of how this gruesome practice in medicine came to be. Uh, Laura talks about her experience being on home call while having also regular clinic duties and choosing to stay at a hotel so she didn't have to commute home and drive home with virtually no sleep and rest. And so she talks about how she advocated for herself. She also offers practical tips around how to best maintain your health during stretches of sleep deprivation if you have no other choice, if you are doing a 24, 28 hour call. And so even if you're not a physician, there is plenty of good information in here that can be beneficial to you if you're having difficulties with sleep or just want to learn more about how sleep deprivation impacts everyone involved in healthcare. If you have a sleep deprived doctor, what that means. And she talks about what ideally she would like to see. And and I tell her, you gotta be the one to lead this because I don't see anyone else leading the way. Um, But I have no doubt that with her advocacy that she will make a difference. So without further ado, here is today's episode. So Laura, lately, because of COVID and because of the past year of what you've been through, um, what you've experienced as a doctor, you've talked, and even before COVID, um, you've been passionate about sleep deprivation and something that you've endured and so many other people in healthcare have endured and you started the I can't remember when this was but you started taking in people's stories on Instagram and you have a highlight of that on your Instagram and I was reading through that when when you did that and I was devastated to see how people are being treated what's expected of them and also what you've personally gone through and you've this has this has become something passionate for you and you've done research on this and you're learning more about it and you're advocating for change around this. So what's been your story with sleep deprivation? I know you have a few stories and we can just start with um, your wherever you feel you want to start with and then we'll take it from there. Sure. Thanks for having me, Erica. So um, most of your listeners probably know that medical residents and fellows experience sleep deprivation to a really high degree. Um, this is historical. So since kind of the beginning for 100 years or more, sleep deprivation has just been part of the culture where residents and fellows have been expected to work, you know, 24, 28, 36-hour shifts and uh, just do so without any rest at all and just 
continue to perform patient care and somehow maintain their own physical and mental health. Um, unfortunately, we know that over the last 20 or 30 years, the sleep research has really developed and we know how harmful this is for ourselves as clinicians and how harmful this is for our patients when it comes to patient safety. Um, and so I, I am a fellow in my first year of fellowship in hematology and oncology. So I did three years of an internal medicine residency. In my second and third years of uh, in my residency, I worked many, probably at least 40 or 50, uh, 28 hour calls. So this means you start the morning at 7 a.m., you work all day, and then you stay all night, and you, you work a 24-hour shift, and then you continue to write your notes and finish your patient care, all while being awake the whole time. And after 28 hours, you sign the care out to another resident who's now taking a 28-hour shift. And so this is the model that really persists in residencies across the country, and then as a fellow, I now work in many fellows across the country, even residents work what's called home call. And there are really no rules at all about home call. And so you, you work 24 seven for seven days straight. You work all night, people call you all night from home and then you have a clinical responsibility the next day on a different service. And so you're really getting very little if not fragmented sleep while you're a fellow. And a lot of residents work home call unfortunately, the rules to protect trainees around home call are very, very uh, vague in the language they use. And so for me personally, when I was a resident, I'd be working these 28 hour calls. And, you know, the first one I could get through, I would sleep the next day as much as I could, I would, you know, but I worked months and months of these at a time every fourth day, some residents work these every third day or every second day, mine was every fourth day. And the, the fatigue is really compounding, especially when you're at the end of the month or you're going into another rotation where your sleep is fragmented. And as you know, Erica, I'm a person who really tries really hard to take care of my health and try to exercise consistently. I eat a plant-based diet. Sleep is really important to me. And But yet when you are sleep deprived, your mental and physical health just deteriorates. And this was true with me. I mean, I have had some anxiety in my life, but I felt my anxiety got much worse. We know that sleep deprivation is an independent risk factor for anxiety, depression, and suicidality. And, you know, I journal a lot as well. And so when I'd be on the end of a 28 hour call, I would just journal what I was feeling. I would go back to that. And I, it's, it's almost terrifying by how some, how dark some of those thoughts are of just how desperately you need to sleep after being awake for 28 hours. And then as a fellow working seven days straight, that was a, just a challenge that I had never experienced before. I'd done the 20, 28 hour calls, but as a fellow having to, you know, I start call on Friday night and then I work all day sat. I'm all up most of the night on Friday night. I work all day Saturday. I'm up most of the night Saturday night. I work all day Sunday. I'm up most of the night Sunday night and on and on and on. And, you know, I had this really difficult call last year where I was, I was sleeping in a hotel to try to avoid commuting home. I was going, trying to go to sleep as soon as I was done with my clinical activities in the day. So that was like 6 p.m. And I got two hours of fragmented sleep the whole night and then worked the next day. And by four days of this, I was so mentally and physically exhausted that I was just at the end of my rope. And I said, this, you know, this is not okay. This is not protecting my health. There are, there are reports of people dying of being awake for, you know, five or six days straight. And so I um, wrote an email to my very supportive and thankfully very supportive program to the attending. And I said, you know, this is because of COVID. A lot of calls have been more busy. Patients are calling, they're worried, all of these things. And I said, I, 
I feel that it is reasonable for me to be excluded from my daytime duty hours for rest. And my, thankfully my attending was very supportive and granted that. Um, but I think, I think the, the sheer fact that many people are not in a position where they can, they can raise their voice, especially if they're on a visa, if they're earlier on in their training or they don't feel they are in a supportive program. And I think that's my biggest concern really is that we should not as trainees have to advocate for sleep because sleep is a basic human right. It's a basic human need. Sleep is non-negotiable. Our body needs it for to have a functioning immune system, to protect us from heart disease, diabetes, dementia as we age, and especially our mental health in the here and now. And so I have become kind of this, you know, sleep advocate because I see that it really needs, we need to have more of this conversation in our training. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought when you're going through that, I, I was feeling so much for you. And when you posted that, that email that you sent to your, to your attending, right? Was your attending? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was so proud and I felt so much courage like that must have taken so much courage for you to to do that and like you said other people may not be in the position to be able to do that or they're too afraid to do that or maybe they've tried and they've faced consequences and when you talk about like the dark thoughts and the effects that come from being sleep deprived this has really blown my my mind because there's been studies like and I'm sure you know about it that being sleep deprived to some degree, the equivalent of being drunk or like not being able to make informed decisions at your best capacity, like as if you were intoxicated. So why is it that this is how it is? Like, this is just the way it is in medicine. Like, why was that even established? Like, why, why are these long calls? Like, why is this even a thing? Because I don't understand why it was established in the first place. Yes. So the, it's actually, if you look back into the history of medical training, there was a surgeon, I believe his name was Dr. Halstead, and he had this superhuman ability to stay awake. He would operate all night and all day and all night and all day and expect his residents to do the same. Mm-hmm. And only much later did they find out that he was actually addicted to cocaine. Oh. That was what was keeping him awake and using heroin to help him fall asleep. Mm-hmm. Um, or is morphine, morphine or heroin. But so, you know, it's interesting that sleep, sleep has sleep deprivation and the ability to work like a robot is really seen as dedication to work saying, this is how I'm dedicated to my work. I'm going to be here all night and all day and all night. And I will be here the latest. And we have this culture of overwork and it is so ingrained. It is more so, you know, I am very, very lucky that my residency program, um, we have done away with every single 28 hour call we have advocated, we've done away with every 28 hour call because we are raising our voices and saying, this is not the model we support. But I think that this does not need to be the burden placed on the the trainee to be the advocate. I think this needs to be a higher down decision to look at the sleep research, right? Why is it, why is it that, like you said, Erica, we know that if you're awake for 18 hours or beyond, it's equivalent to being legally intoxicated your attention decreases, your memory decreases, your ability to concentrate decreases, your ability to uh, solve a complex problem decreases. And when it, this is the problem of your patient, an acute problem of your patient in the middle of the night, why is it that we're allowing this? And we know that residents and fellows and even attending physicians who are sleep deprived make medical errors 
significant medical errors that affect patients' lives. And yet those doctors are not the ones who choose to be sleep deprived, and they are gonna be the ones to live with those decisions for the rest of their lives. And those patients' families have to live with those decisions, right? And so I don't think that if we really care about learning and we care about patient safety, sleep deprivation makes no sense in medical training. Mm-hmm. Yes, so that, I didn't know the history about that. That's really interesting. Um, and it it reveals a lot of flaws clearly because he was using substances to help stay awake um and you talked about so i i looked i keep alluding to those instagram stories that you you shared of people anonymously and there was a lot of words and feelings to describe things that are associated with burnout in terms of feeling this inability to cope feeling like a failure um someone talked about slipping into a helpless depression and in your experience do you think that sleep sleep deprivation plays a role in the development of burnout or like in your experience or other people in your circle that you've talked to that have also experienced this absolutely i would say that you know experiencing you know if we're defining burnout as um, depersonalization and Um, if we're defining it as exhaustion and if, you know, sleep deprivation makes a person not want to go back to work. Sleep deprivation makes a person hardly able to function in their role. And it's, we know that it's associated with compassion fatigue, meaning that it's harder to see patients as people and to care deeply about them. When you are sleep deprived, your body is in survival mode and it's really hard, especially when you're on 24, 25, 26, 20, you know, and beyond it's really hard to think about anything than your most immediate needs. I mean, your tongue feels heavy in your mouth, your limbs feel heavy. I mean, you are basically going through the motions to try to survive. And I don't think that that is a good model for protecting the health of uh, clinicians or their longevity in this field. How do we expect them to have meaning and purpose in their work and enjoy their work if we are literally killing them with sleep deprivation. Yes. Yes. And there's been, uh, I'll talk about burnout for a a second before I have other questions related to sleep deprivation, but you know, with, with burnout, a lot of the backlash of it has been, oh, well it implies there's something wrong with you or you're not working hard enough. But in fact, when it's, it is systematic in at its in its very nature because it's a problem with the work environment and so if the work environment and in this case with sleep if you're not able to physiologically function um because this system of medicine and then other people wrote wrote into you like pas and nurses so it it affects other uh people as well and it's this thing where systematically where if you're not even you're not even you don't have the foundation to even succeed at a physiological level because you can't because you're not protecting your health like you said it should be very contradictory to this profession of helping people and uh ensuring health but it's like the opposite of that so it's how can you it's there seems to be such a big disconnect there so that's just like my my thoughts on that yeah it is a very bizarre thing to you know 
be taught to practice evidence-based medicine, which means looking at all the data and making the best decision. And I think we're really good at this in some regards, but when it comes to sleep research, it seems that the medical community as a whole tends to ignore it. And I think there's a couple of reasons for it. I think that there's historical belief that it trains good doctors. Mm. And I think there are really good people who are leading programs who are trying to train good doctors. But I don't know that we have, I don't know that that data has kind of saturated into their beliefs. And I think staffing is another really big major barrier. I was talking to my program director before we changed things that to make things much, much better. Um, but it was really that we didn't have the staffing, right? We have a national cap on how many residents there are each year, and that's set by Congress, and that's not changed since the 90s. Mm -hmm. And so we have residents that are not matching every year, medical students who go in and they don't match uh, into residency programs, and yet we don't have enough residents at some of these programs to really make some of these solutions possible. And so I, I agree. I think that we it needs to be a, a larger approach and a step-down approach so that the fellows and residents don't have to be the ones advocating because often they're not in a position where they feel that they can do so. And there are many, many, many people that have reached out to me and have said, thank you for talking about this. Please make this anonymous. I don't want my program to know because this is my career. This is my shot. I'm on a visa. Or mm. if I spoke out, I would be gone. There are people that that really express that fear. And so they're just trying, they're going through survival mode, but they're not enjoying their job and they're sleep deprived and it's going to affect their lives for years to come, but they don't feel that they can speak out. Mm -hmm. And like you mentioned, you're fortunate that you had a good experience in expressing your concerns and advocating for yourself. But I read other stories from your DMs and there's, I'm sure there's so many more where people experienced a rewards for overworking, like you mentioned, like it's accepted and encouraged to overwork or B being reprimanded. So what in your experience, just some stories, you know, what are some examples of people that have been either applauded, even rewarded for overworking and killing themselves in this way or like, and or um, ways in which people have experienced harsh, even punishment for trying to speak out, for falling asleep, for trying to squeeze in a nap um, or anything like that. Some of these stories come from people around the world who have reached out to me. There was a woman who said that, you know, she fell asleep and her attending threw a wet paper towel in her face while she was asleep. Um, people have had objects thrown at them in the operating room for um, dozing off. Uh, People have been said that they don't care about their jobs or they're not very serious about their work if they're not willing to stay later than everyone else on the team in the evening. I think that, um, I know another woman has said she would be punished by every question she got wrong on rounds, she would be punished with an extra three hours awake. So she'd have to stay an extra three hours of work. So sleep deprivation being used as a punishment. I thankfully have never experienced those things, uh, but there are people around the world that are experiencing those things. And in terms of speaking out, there have been people who have been essentially told, well, if this is not for you, if this surgical program is not for you, then you're out. We will find someone else and you will find a different program. Essentially, it's this way or you're not a good fit. You're not dedicated. You don't care about your work. You don't care about your patients. And I think that's the mentality that often comes with, with sleep deprivation is that if you're not willing to do it, then of course, you, you as a trainee, your patients, if you refuse to do a shift, either someone has to cover for you 
another one or the patients aren't cared for. And so there's this duty implied that you don't want to put this burden on your peers and you don't want to put that, you don't want your patients to go without care. And so most of us just go numb and go on and just do the work because we think it's temporary. But the problem is, is that residents are literally dying by suicide. An average doctor one a day is dying by suicide because of many factors, but sleep deprivation is a big contributing factor. Mm. Wow. And so you mentioned that in Congress, there hasn't been changes to any reform on residency slots. And do you think that, and maybe there's other things that from a top-down approach could resolve this problem? I think there are two main things that need to happen. I think the first thing needs to be, or maybe at the same time, there needs to be an expansion of residency slots so that more people can take this care because what happens is that if hospitals don't have someone often a resident or a fellow to cover a shift then they have to hire on nurse practitioners physician assistants or hospitalists and that is a big cost to a hospital system and so there's a huge financial burden to relieving trainees of sleep de- of this burden of long shifts and sleep deprivation. So I'd say the finances are the big thing. And most of these are teaching hospitals that don't have a lot of extra money lying around. They're taking care of, um, they're often safety net hospitals. And so expanding the number of residency slots so that training programs can have enough workforce to split some of these shifts, that's really a great way to start. And we know that there are people, there are medical students who don't match every year. And so there are people who who could fill those slots and help with that burden. The second thing really needs to be a leadership statement by the ACGME, which is the governing body um, for medical trainees. And, And I think the very first thing that needs to happen is clearer language about home call. Right now, the language about home call is extremely vague. There's just a few sentences in the whole the whole um, essentially protocol about this saying that's that home call cannot be so demanding as to preclude rest. Right. But there's no there's no if you work all night, if you're up all night, you should have an, a, a seven hour window of sleep. There is no rule like that that exists. And so home call is a big way that medical trainees are abused because no one knows how many times you're called overnight. Usually you're getting called every 30 minutes or more frequently. So you can't fall asleep and get any meaningful rest within 30 minutes. It's just not possible. And our physiology of non-REM sleep and REM sleep, it just does not facilitate fragmentation of our sleep through call. So there needs to be a dedicated period of rest for anyone that's working a home call shift. And then lastly, there have been many national organizations and polls. So patients do not want trainees to be, they don't want tired doctors to take care of them. We know that. And there, the Institute of Medicine did a, a huge dive into the research and actually recommended that no resident should work more than 16 hour shifts. So with an eight hour period of sleep. And I think that's a very reasonable goal. This has been supported by a number of national organizations. And so those major things, those three things, Congress increasing the slots for medical trainees. um, Now that hasn't been done since the 90s. And then having better rules when it comes to home call that are very clear. And then, you know, this is not hard to do, but making a 16 hour limit for any trainee is I think the three big things that would need to happen. Mm-hmm. So we need you to lobby for this. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, and I, um, 
I agree. I think that uh, there are a lot of good people working in this area. And like I said, patients don't support this. A number of national organizations don't support this. And the big problem is staffing. I think it comes down to staffing and that hospitals mm -hmm. don't have the budgets to be able to do this. And so doesn't everything come down to money, Erica, right? Yes. I think Bottom that if line. we can fix that, then we can really do a world of good for our patients and for the, do the, the doctors that we are trying to train to be compassionate, caring, um, like your podcast says, lit up people who are passionate about what they do. And I think go doing away with sleep deprivation would do a world of good to make that happen. True or false, you have thought about leaving patient care or having a non-clinical side job. If that's true, that's totally okay. It doesn't make you a bad person. If you're interested in making that leap either part-time or full-time, the non-clinical 101 course is the charcuterie to your board. My husband, Mike, took this course at the beginning of the pandemic and successfully landed an account executive role for a rehab EMR company. I can't tell you how happy he is working remotely and stepping outside of direct patient care, but still working within the clinical world. This course offers comprehensive information, resources, and step-by-step -step guidance about making the right moves into the non-clinical world. Mike's most valuable takeaways were learning how which roles best aligned with his interests and personality and how to stand out in the non-clinical world through strategic job searching and resume planning. You can use my unique affiliate link and save 50% off the course. Link is in the show notes or visit joyenergytime.com forward slash resources. Yes, and as you were talking, I thought about going back to sleep deprivation and burnout and you mentioned compassion sleep is a resource and there's this model in the burnout world job demands resource model so if there are too many demands and not enough resources or the demands exceed your resources then job stress burnout are likely to occur and so like the demands are high aka like in this case the amount of hours the workload and cut into that resource you need to replenish yourself. So like I was trying to put it into words from a, a theoretical standpoint, but that's like, it just came to me like to mention that model um, because I'm very passionate about the, uh, that, that research, that line of research. And so that is interesting. And you read a book. I don't remember what it's called. I don't know if you're still reading it. The telomeres book. Okay. It's called why we sleep. Oh, okay. Is that by um, Matthew Walker? Yes. And there's yeah. also, yeah, the telomere book is um, another book as well that is um, fantastic. And that one is called The, the Telomere Effect. Mm -hmm. And that actually is the, the authors of those books won a Nobel Prize for their work. Wow. Essentially, telomeres, for those of you who don't know, is they're kind of like the, um, the plastic on the shoelace, like they protect your DNA. They are the caps on the DNA that protect it. And the, the telomeres are linked to your aging. And we know that the shorter they, the quicker that they shorten and that, that kind of plastic gets eroded away, the quicker you age. And sleep deprivation is one of the fastest ways to cut into that telomere and to deplete um, essentially your ability to live a long, healthy life. And I mean, this whole book, Why We Sleep, I recommend that for anyone who has not read it. It's very readable. It's essentially all of the research on sleep for the last 30 years about 
why why it matters and how to protect your sleep. And there's a chapter on here about medical trainees and, and clinicians as well. So it's a highly readable book and I really recommend it. Yeah, that stat I mentioned about being intoxicated, I got it from Matthew Walker. <laughs> yeah, it's um yeah. it's a you know and it's what and we know that you know residents in nurses too, right? They're, they're asked to work double shifts. Uh, a lot of PAs and NPs are asked to work overnight shifts. And this is not just residents and fellows. This is attending physicians and across the spectrum of clinicians expected to work long hours. But, you know, then they're driving home, getting in car accidents. They are mm-hmm. putting other people at risk, not just their patients, but other people on the road. There are many, many reasons why this is, this is not a healthy model for anyone. You remind me regularly of the importance of that mindfulness piece of being compassionate and it's how can you be expected to be more compassionate if you just don't have the resources to do it so I just keep going coming back to that because it it makes sense and it's for the betterment of patient care it's for the betterment of society at a whole so we just need we just need more money like you said (laughs) it's true and this is one of the most devastating aspects of sleep deprivation to me because i i write i'm a writer i journal when i'm rested i journal when i'm sleep deprived and you know when any person that's sleep deprived is being honest with you they have compassion fatigue to some level i once admitted a patient who had a brain tumor who this was at 6 a.m. So I'd been there for, I'd been at the hospital for 23 hours and I had not slept and I was admitting him with a brain tumor. And I got the call around 5.30 that I needed to admit another patient. And I go to his room and it takes, it it was, you know, it was tragic, but it took him about a minute to say a single sentence, right? And it was just, it took me an hour to sit there with him and try to understand what was going on. His family wasn't answering the phone and it was just really difficult. But if I were rested at that moment, the amount of patience that I could have had would have been astronomically larger. And it's really devastating as a clinician who tries to be compassionate and to bring kindness and intentionality with my communication to each patient. I mean, this is across the board when any person is sleep deprived that they their level of patience is reduced, their ability to connect and to care for a human being is reduced because your body goes into survival mode and you have decreased ability to care about, I mean, sleep is your immediate need. And it is, it is really, really, really challenging, right? I think of it like this, like if you're few, if you're, if you're a person that is um, not, don't, you don't have tendencies toward anger, but your fuse is extremely long, you, you're, if you're sleep deprived, that's at least half. Right. But if your fuse is already really short, like you are going to have outbursts of anger. And I know a lot of our nurses have shared that, that they, you know, the, the doctors they're calling at night will have outbursts of anger towards them. And that's because they're sleep deprived. Right. And mm-hmm. I just think it's a terrible model for, you know, for collaboration, for caring about our patients, for for protecting our health. Sleep deprivation just makes no sense at all. Like happens to the best of us, even the most compassionate people it's you you don't have the capacity to be as compassionate as you know you could be because of your container your container is already cut in half like you said so what are some tips you have on surviving being on call and just getting through that and making sure like you stay alive and you get you know you do the best you can within those circumstances but what are some of your favorite tips that have helped you I think the most important thing is that if you are tired or if you've been awake for 
24 more hours, you may not realize how tired you are. Please do not drive. Please take a nap, sleep in a hotel, protect your health and protect others' health. I think that's just the number one thing. Um, the other things are just, you know, at least for me, I if I am getting paged all night and I finally have a window to try to fall asleep, it feels you have your your stress hormone hormones like cortisol are spiking, your your heart may be racing, you may be anxious. Am I gonna miss a page or am I going to um, um, make the wrong decision, right? Your anxiety is really high, even when you have periods of time to rest. And so uh, things that have really helped me are just to accept. I lay in bed and I kind of just close my eyes and I just have this kind of deep breath, almost meditation of acceptance. If I get paged in two minutes, I accept that. If I get a little bit of sleep, I accept that. Whatever is to come, I accept that. And I think that honestly helps me to fall into sleep, even if it's a light sleep, more than just lying there and anxious and worried. So just kind of this meditation of acceptance. As much as you can, try to promote your health in all the other areas. It will never make up for sleep deprivation, but for me, it's something that I could control. So bringing in food that was healthy, mostly plant-based, trying to get some type of exercise, whether it's just walking the halls, doing stairs, um, doing yoga, if you can, while you're already gonna be awake. If you have a moment to put your feet up, and close your eyes and just do some deep breathing. Those things can really help. Taking a five minute break during the day before your team leaves to go walk around the hospital, get outside, go into a garden, all those things help to try to prepare you for the night that is to come. And then just give yourself a lot of grace, okay? I, I don't wanna put the burden on you as a trainee to um, change, thing in your, change things in your system, but I, if you have the security for whatever reason, if you're not on a visa or if you have you know, a financial support in your household, those are things that I, I felt comfortable speaking out because my husband is working, I'm not on a visa, I had good relationships with my program, I felt comfortable speaking out and being an advocate. But as much as you can on those anonymous evaluations, if you feel they are anonymous, be honest about the rotations, and about the people who are leading you and try even when you're done, right? I am done with my residency program and I continually am trying to make changes to make it better. I am still in my fellowship and we are having these conversations, these hard conversations about how can we make this call structure better? I understand that many people are not in a position to be able to do that, but if you can do that. And then lastly is about just physically sleeping during the day is really hard. Your body is um, if you read why we sleep, you're going to understand why, but your circadian rhythm is really in tune to be, be asleep at night and be awake during the day. And so melatonin can help, but it needs to be a very small dose, 0.5 to 3 milligrams. Don't take more than that, because if you take more, it can actually stop your body from making its mm. own melatonin. Um, blackout curtains, face mask over your eyes, um, keeping your bedroom quiet and dark. I think all those things can help, but just recognize that this is a really hard time and be gentle with yourself. Keep raising your voice if you can and support your health in the other areas if you're able to. Yeah. And you made me think about the smile score. So when we talked about the smile score in your first interview, it was way before COVID. Um, and so how have you been able to integrate the smile score? Not like since in, in 2020 with your difficult times, the, those difficult weeks that you had when you were on call, um, at the height of COVID, like if at all, because, um, I know at that, during those times, I'm sure so many people, and maybe you felt this way, were just about like surviving and 
just arriving and does this did the smile score come into your life at all during those times or what what was your relationship like with that yeah so the 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 smile scale is something that i just try to integrate into my life every day so it's sleep getting enough sleep moving my body inhale and exhale which is meditation meditation love and connect and eat to nourish and i think during covid it was not always possible was working long hours i i think um, using this as a tool to support my health is always a good way to frame things, but there are days where my sleep score was zero. There were days where my exercise score was zero. There were days where I didn't meditate. And I think, and that's still, that's still the reality of my busy clinical days. I try, I try to use it as a framework to think about how would I ideally set up my day in my life to protect my health. And I still use that. And uh, I'm being more intentional uh, about meditating each day and even even doing waking up if I, I now I'm on a rotation where I wake up at 545 in the morning and I'm to the hospital by 630. And so I wake up and I do five minutes of yoga and meditation at the same time, right? It doesn't have to be, I'm learning that, especially on difficult months, that this doesn't have to be, right? Um, an hour, two hour morning routine where I get all this done and that's not always possible. But I, I really true, truly have tried to create routines that when I have more time to expand in those areas, but then just do the best that I can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think for me too, it's about quality, not quantity. So if I have a few mindful moments throughout the day, now that I'm in back in a clinical setting, if, if I have a few mindfulness moments and no, I'm not kidding you. I, like when I'm having a moment where I'm just like a little frustrated, I'll remember one of your posts or thinking about, oh, you know, Laura talks about being compassionate and I have a moment where I pause and something that helped me, which it kind of not necessarily related, but I feel like I have to say it where it's like, you know, your patients, they, it's not that they're giving you a hard time, it's they're having a hard time. And I try to remember that a lot um, and has helped me so much and to be more mindful and more still. And it helps to create a lot of space in my day. And it just creates space to breathe and to, to be with my patient. Um, and so just something, just wanted to tell you how much of an influence you've had on my patient care. And um, I forgot what we were just talking about. So. I just, I love it. I just want to say thank you. I love that. And that means so much to me. And you have, there's so many things that you like the grounding that you do and like being grounded and um, taking mindfulness moments. That's something I really try to integrate into my day. And that book, um, Attending by Dr. Epstein, I believe. And so he does this thing where he pauses for two seconds outside of the patient's room before he enters. And I've started doing that in my clinic because my clinic is just hectic. I see uh, 12, some 10 to 12 patients in three hours and they often don't speak English and there's translators and video mm -hmm. translators and chemo decisions being made and end of life decisions being made. And it's just mm -hmm. a very emotionally, right? Each, each time, each patient I see, um, you know, it's a, it's a very challenging, but such, such a fulfilling clinic. And sometimes I just feel like I'm rushing from one place to another in that window. And so taking a deep breath outside of each patient's room and just saying, let me be present with this person for the time that I have, that just helps me slow down. And it's really hard to slow down in clinical practice when we're taught to rush and see as many patients as possible. And that, that has really helped me. So I've been trying to do that too. Awesome. Well, I know we've always been able to 
help each other <laughs> throughout the years. Um, I know you've definitely helped me so much. I remember what I was saying. It's the quality of the things in the smile scale um, versus like how much you do. Like if you can't do an hour of yoga, can you do, like you said, check in with yourself before walking into a patient's room? Like you absolutely can and can you movement like you said like walking up and down the stairs or you know like the days where I'm in the clinic uh those are 10 plus hour days so I don't I can't I don't have the energy to do an an intense hit workout when I get home but what I will do (laughs) I will take a walk um and during that day I use it as like I am I've moved my body a lot and um now like I'm gonna listen to my body and, and I need to take a walk just to kind of decompress and so there's been, there's a lot in the smile scale that for me, it's been something that it's about making it manageable and making it fit into your life versus you having to go out of your way um, to like do these big grandiose things that aren't sustainable or feasible, especially like when you're going through so many stressful shifts just remembering like oh like even if you had a zero zero score in sleep or zero score in movement or whatever it's not to punish yourself i remember last time you were talking about like using looking at your score and noticing how you feel and sometimes you could correlate your score versus how you're feeling because you know exercise makes you feel good you know sleep makes you feel good and it's healthy for you so it's so good and i really believe that any movement counts right there are days where i just I have 10 minutes before my, before something else is happening. And I just say to myself, this, sometimes it's hard to do this. So I say, I'm just going to go walk the stairs for 10 minutes. And walking around the hospital is a lot of exercise, right? Mm-hmm. There, we do get a lot of movement in our day, especially if we are more sedentary, being more intentional about it. All of that counts and really does matter. Okay. So you wrote this piece that when I read it, I have to admit, I, I did tear up um, and I felt First of all, you're an excellent writer. And for those of you listening that don't know, because I don't think many people know, but Laura's my writing buddy and we keep each other kind of accountable for, our, um, we're buddies first, writing accountability partner second. Laura is a fantastic writer and she's working on a book and so am I. Um, but you wrote a piece in the Valley and it was your account of your daughter questioning death and your experience with losing a patient that in the midst of COVID had to say goodbye to family members on a screen and like that whole experience. So can you share a little bit about what led you to write this piece? So this past year, so many clinicians have experienced a really high amount of grief and grief is something that we don't talk about in our training. At least we didn't talk about in my training there, when you connect with a person and it really depends on how well you know them and how long you've known them in my experience, but that you are going to experience sadness and you may even grieve the, 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 the loss of their life. And in my training um, this past year, and especially now into my fellowship in, I'm a, you know, a cancer fellow, is that I experience, I experience this emotion of grief on a pretty frequent basis. And I still believe that it is important to connect with our patients and to care about them as people. I do not think that going numb and kind of compartmentalizing these areas of my life is a really healthy thing because I believe that my patient's stories become part of my own. They help paint this tapestry that's my life. And I love that they're part of my life. But grief is something that 
we need to talk more about because it's an emotion that when we care deeply about people and we care for them through serious illness that we're going, we may experience. And I think there are, we need to complete the process. I think that kind of shoving it down deep and pretending it doesn't exist is not healthy for us. And so finding a space, whether that's at work, whether it's talking to your coworkers that are having a similar experience, whether it's talking to a grief counselor, journaling, I think there are really healthy ways to express that grief. And for me, writing has been one of the ways that I have kind of coped with this. And so that essay in the Valley, it was uh, written during kind of the the height of the pandemic in, in the spring of 2020, where I was taking care of a lot of people on the COVID ward who were dying and they were dying alone. And just this reflection of watching people say goodbye to their loved ones, especially this woman saying goodbye to her family over a screen and then me going home and being able to hold my child at night and not not knowing you know where in my life when am i going to die and will my will my daughter be able to be with me will i be alone or not and there are a lot of complex emotions that come with this work and we don't talk about it and i think in, in my writing it's something that i i bring a lot of things to to light that are hard to talk about because i think it's important to recognize that there's going to be secondary trauma there's going to be grief there's you're going to experience a ton of emotions in your work and it's healthy to feel those emotions to express them and to find a way to cope with them mm-hmm. yeah you mentioned people that can go they think it's better to just numb themselves to the pain um and you said grief, it is a very real and um, very real human emotion that instead of running away from it, we can lean towards it and it's healthy to experience it. And yeah, those are heavy things. You come home and your daughter overhears you and talking about dying, like what is dying. And there's a lot that you take on and you can also use it you can use, like you said, like express your grief in different outlets, writing, you're, te- you're using those moments as an, a moment to teach your daughter um, these things, even though it's hard. And so that's a beautiful piece. I think that people need to not be afraid of that and not be afraid of their, their grief. It doesn't make you weak. Um, in fact, it, may, it means that you're a compassionate person, a compassionate provider. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. So we had a lot of heavy discussion about sleep and grief and dying. So let's end this podcast on a light note. Are you ready? (laughs) Sounds good. So these are some rapid fire questions. Um, I thought about, it'd be fun to ask you, what's the best thing that has happened to you this month? Oh my gosh. Um, that's a hard. Qu- oh my gosh! Rapid fire. I know, Erica. Um, my trademark went through. <laughs> yeah, that's right for the smile scale. Two years, two yeah. years working back and forth. It went through. It was amazing. That's awesome. I'm so happy. So, what's next for that? Now that it's trademarked. Um, I'm working on a, a way to integrate into the cancer health promotion sphere. So, on patients that are um, living with or in remission from cancer, how to integrate this into their lives and a research. And then of course there's a book coming too on that. Ah, is that the book you're working on? Like, I know you're working on a fiction book or is that something else? I think the fiction book's coming first and then the smile skill book's coming second. So I'm kind of mostly just working on the novel, but that one's kind of next up. Oh, yay. Okay. 
Yay, we're writers, up-and-coming writers. Watch out, world. (laughs) Uh, If you could lock yourself up for six months and work on your book, where would it be? Right here in my office with these, my walls are painted this color rain. I have little twinkle lights up. I have a view out my window of the woods and I have a tea kettle right there on the side. And this is like my Zen space. So it would be right here. How about you? Where would yours be? Mine, that's a good question. <laughs> um, mine would be in some sort of, and it's probably very cliche, but some sort of cabin in the in the woods, uh, because mountains, as you know personally, like you know that we love mountains. Something about the mountains, it's very serene and tranquil, and I that's where I would be somewhere, like uh, like very cabin esque, very yeah, that sort of vibe. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. Have you had any weird or vivid dreams lately? Hmm. I guess that, uh, yes. I'm try- I'm so bad at rapid fire, Erica. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> my brain is just not working right now. I'm like, I know I've had a dream. You know, my novel came to me in a dream, but I can't think of any right now. Like what would be a vivid dream? No, I can't, I can't think of any, sorry. It's okay. Um, I had a dream last night that Emma Watson wrote a blog about where to hike in Colorado and I went to that place and it was just very dream not real like just the whole thing and then I was thinking I have dreams but then like I forget my dreams most of the time too so (laughs) um what's your favorite way to manage stress writing Uh, It's probably my biggest way when I'm having like an acute stress in my life, like something terrible just happened, or I am experiencing a really difficult clinical situation. I just will open the document on my phone and just dictate into it. And then if I'm at home, I'll just write into it. Um, And then my second favorite way is walking somewhere in nature, anywhere in nature, just being outside. Mm -hmm. Name one thing you've learned the hard way. Oh gosh, a million things. <laughs> um, that it's better to um, it's better to speak up for what you think is right rather than just go with the flow. But that is a really, really, really hard thing to do because it sometimes comes with consequences. But yeah, yes. Um, what's your guilty pleasure? Mm. Right now I'm watching the Queen's Gambit. It's so um, good. <laughs> yeah. So I've been, I don't know. Is that a guilty net? So sometimes Netflix, um, that's probably my big one right now. That, you? Um, I put Nutella on my bagel every morning. Um, and I don't care if it's not like necessarily the healthiest breakfast, but I do eat an omelet on the side of it with spinach. And so I, try to like I balance it but like I have to have Nutella every morning oh Nutella is so good oh my gosh yeah <laughs> well that was it for the rapid fire um so yeah I'm bad at it too because when you would ask me I clearly was not very quick to answer these questions but <laughs> um, so where can people I'm like such a, I'm like a very cerebral person I'm like okay let me just really assess the question and I'm like you know don't. it's not don't <laughs> I get you, Laura. I'm, I'm the same way. I'm like, how can I answer this in the best way possible? I can't just like, just go with it. Um, <laughs> so where can people connect with you, find you? 
Awesome. So I have a website that hosts most of my writing. That's lauravater.com, V-A-T-E-R is my last name. And then I'm also active on Instagram and Twitter, more on Instagram. And my handle is doc, D-O-C, Laura Vater, V-A-T-E-R. We'd love to connect with you. Awesome, Laura. So you know what's coming. Um, What makes you your most lit up self? Mm, my goodness, talking to Erica. No, you know, just just feeling that there are, you know, people in this world that care about this stuff that I do is just phenomenal. Also, you know, taking care of myself, but mostly getting outside and getting some type of exercise outside, especially hiking when I can, but I'll take what I can get. COVID willing, you have to come here to Colorado and we can hike together. Oh, I, oh, I love that. Oh my gosh, That'd be wonderful. Well, thank you, Laura. Thanks for having me, Erica. I really appreciate it. Welcome to the after party. So by the time this comes out, Doc Laura and I would have recorded a joint Instagram live together. And you can find that conversation at my Instagram at joy.energy.time. And we answer a lot of questions from our communities in regards to sleep questions, sleep deprivation questions. So you can go there if you want more of this. All right. So this after party is actually not that exciting. Honestly, earlier today, I felt like crying just because I get into these bouts of feeling overwhelmed. And if you follow closely on Instagram, I have been making more posts about being overwhelmed. And I put a sticky, I made a sticky note post about overwhelmed to overflowing and just changing the view of being overwhelmed. And even with this perception of view it as overflowing, it's still it hasn't been helpful for me today and I have been feeling the stress of it. And to be honest, I have not been really inspired to come up with a really inspirational, dramatic joy tidbit. And then I started to think about this documentary I saw a few weeks ago. I may have already mentioned it on the show, but Call Into the Wild or no, Into the Wild. The documentary came out in 2007. It's based on a true life story. Um, from Christopher McCandles and how he died in the wilderness in Alaska in 1992. And sometimes when I need a little bit of perspective, I think about that, not to diminish my own experience, but it's helpful to look at other people's experiences. And unfortunately, his led to his death. And I have learned some valuable lessons from his story. So today's joy tidbit is make sure you have a big goal to look forward to. It might not necessarily tie into into the wild, but I think it does. And it just inspired today's tidbit when I couldn't think of anything else I wanted to share um, because he had something to look forward to, which was seizing life, carpe diem sort of mentality of... And this is why I want to read the book because I know there's more to it than, of course, in the documentary revealed. But whether or not you agree with how he went about it, that is for another discussion. But his attitude about life, it's brave. It was brave. So he lived by his own rules on his own timeline. And that was inspiring to me. And his big goal was getting to Alaska. And so... I have big goals and I recently had to revisit them and I'm working on visualizing and manifesting and meditating these goals of mine more than I had been in the past. 
when I started doing my ritual morning walks in December, I take my morning walk time as time to do a walking meditation and to make affirmations of I am a best-selling author in Amazon. I am a successful podcast host with millions of downloads. Like I, I, I write these things, I say these things, I think these things. And although these goals are in the background and it's, it's what I'm ultimately working towards, it got a little, not lost, like I forgot about it, but I lost the excitement to work towards these things. What has helped to fuel that excitement again and rekindle my flame, <laughs> oh gosh, so, so cheesy, but my, to rekindle my flame for my goals, I have my big goals, like my book is not going to be published this year, but what I want to focus on for manifestation for this year is finishing the first draft of my book, reaching X amount of downloads for the podcast. And so I have been going deep into these, into this visualization of what that would look like. And although I have a vision board right in front of me, it still feels like, okay, these are really nice things. These are things I'm working towards, but I need to have this very specific goal that I'm working towards this year. So I like to have a big goal in the future that My goal for the next two, three years is get this book published and have it be a success and bring this show to more people and then also get my speaking career started. And I have these big two, three, five-year goals and I also have refocused on this year's short-term goals. And one of my goals this year is to get a pet. So Mike and I have been talking about it a lot (laughs) and we're not sure if we're going to start with a dog or a cat first and when the timing of that will be but it will be soon cross my fingers um so I have I don't just have work goals I have other life goals for this year and I've been thinking about okay so I have these short-term goals how can I have a creative way to look at them to celebrate them and there's different ways you could do that you could write a letter to yourself you could have a vision board like I do, but I feel like I need it. I need something else. And I saw someone on Instagram. She wrote on sticky notes her goals and put them, taped them onto champagne bottles so that when she reached her goals, she would pop open the champagne pot- bottle. And I think that's an excellent idea. I want to replicate that, but I don't like champagne, so I will replicate it with wine. <laughs> I have an idea for that, so I might not do that yet, but I'm putting it out there that that's something I intend on doing. Um, and I, I think it's so important to have something to look forward to, whether it's a short-term goal, a long-term goal, a way of living, a lifestyle that maybe you don't have, but you envision yourself having something to look forward to. All right. So as far as what I love in my thirties, I tried really hard to think about something and I could not. And so this could be a sign where A, I need to think harder or B, maybe I need a new segment now. Or maybe I just get rid of this little segment altogether and we just stick to the joy tidbit. If you have any creative ideas for for a segment, message me, email me. I would love to hear it. I'm open to your ideas. So I can't think of another thing I haven't said that I, that I love. Maybe 10 more ideas will come to me after I'm done recording this. Um, or maybe this segment is all done for. Maybe it was short-lived and I'm okay with that. So if you have any ideas for segments, send them my way. 
I appreciate you listening so much. Have a great rest of your day and I will see you all next week. Do you want to help support our show in five seconds or less? Of course you do. All you have to do is subscribe to the show. And if you have about 30 seconds, then rate our show and leave us a quick little review. Share something that you love from the show, a favorite guest, something you've been able to learn from the show. And we appreciate that so much. So remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share our show with your friends, your coworkers, anyone that you think that this show would benefit. We appreciate it so much. Thank you.